Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazaar, recording this on January 10th of the new year, 2019, in my office at the Gatton College of Pharmacy in Mount Home, Tennessee. Today, getting to some uh, some old stuff um, that uh, normally would have uh, been recorded earlier, uh, except for the holiday break. So we're going to talk about some new but niche or niche drugs. Uh, so these are drugs newly approved at the end of 2018, but ones that uh, I would not be surprised if you don't encounter, uh, you know, very frequently, if at all. And those are Calispargase, Ravulizumab, and Tagroxofusp. So let's start with uh, the official name here is Calispargase Pegol-MKNL, and the brand name is uh, Asparlus. So this was approved by the FDA on December 20th, 2018, and approval was based on maintaining Nader serum asparaginase activity levels above 0.1 units per milliliter. And this was based off of a study of 124 patients. Uh, the median age of those patients was uh, uh, 12 years of age. And of those 124, all but one maintained Nader levels above that goal of 0.1 unit uh, per milliliter. Uh, at five different time points. So you are probably familiar with asparagase or pegasparagase or L-asparaginase. So we kind of have three drugs. Um, People don't use the daily injection anymore, the the short-acting one, the L-asparaginase. You could do it every, I think, three times a week potentially as well. So I'll talk about the differences between this new formulation, calasparagase, and pegasparagase which was initially approved in 1994. So pegasparagase, which is the one that's in a lot of the ALL regimens for pediatrics or the pediatric-inspired adult regimens that are often favored in, in you know, adolescents, young adults, maybe up to the age of uh, 30 or 40. So the pegasparagase is the enzyme, uh, asparaginase, and that enzyme basically takes the amino acid uh, asparagine and, you know, cleaves it into aspartic acid and ammonia. And the reason that this drug is used in ALL and only ALL is that for most of us, most of our cells, uh, asparagine is a a non-essential amino acid, meaning we don't need it from our diet or from our environment. And most of our cells in the body can make it just fine from, uh, from scratch, so to speak. Well, ALL cells, uh, they require uh, L-asparagine from their environment. They don't make it themselves. And this is something that happens in cancer cells. You, you, they devote all their intracellular machinery to growing unsustainably. So minor things like making asparagine uh, aren't necessary, especially if you can get asparagine from the environment. In this case, that's human circulating blood. So what this enzyme does is remove that amino acid from the blood uh, and basically starves the leukemia cells of that amino acid, which of course is a precursor uh, in protein production. So pegasparaginase, the dose of that, or pegasparaginase, the dose of that is 2,500 units per meter squared, no more often than every two weeks. So it's kind of an every two week drug. And it, it, it has a monomethoxy polyethylene glycol linker that's made of succimid, succimidal succinate. Uh, and has a half-life of five to six days, 5.8 days per the PI. Calisparagase is the same dose, 2,500 units per meter squared, no more often than every 21 days. So it can be given as long as every three weeks, uh, but no more frequently. It has a different linker. So it's still got the, it's still 
uh, you know, asparaginase attached to the monomethoxy polyethylene glycol, but this time with a succimidal carbonate linker. And that succimidal carbonate linker uh, has a longer half-life with regards to hydrolysis. So it's more resistant to hydrolysis, so it hangs around longer. And what that leads to is a half-life that's not 5.8 days, but 16 days. And therefore, you can give the drug once every three weeks, which means uh, you know, fewer injections uh, for patients, which, uh, which can be good for patients. These are both sourced from E. coli as well. Um, now, when you look at the toxicity data in the package insert, they look pretty similar between pegasparagase and calasparagase. Um, now, because, for, for example, at our institution, we very, very rarely treat ALL. Uh, we do have a, a pediatric hemon group, and they treat you know, children with ALL, but as far as adults, uh, we tend to send those on elsewhere. We treat our AML patients, but ALL we send on, so we're kind of a secondary uh, treatment center. Uh, ALL is a, a burden to treat. Complicated regimens uh, to keep track of requires uh, some handholding sometimes to keep people on track. Um, so we were and with and then also the transplant considerations. So we send those on to a transplant center. So we haven't treated an ALL patient in, in quite a while, and if we do, it's always uh, in conjunction uh, with care coordinated by uh, a, a tertiary referral center or a transplant center. So uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds on the differences in toxicity. They look pretty similar, but if you are going to be looking at this, say, for formulary edition, there's also a publication in JCO in 2014 that compares two of the calasparaginase doses versus pegasparaginase that has some more toxicity data. Um, so I'll briefly run through the, the warnings precautions for this drug just as a refresher because they apply to all the asparaginase drugs. So hypersensitivity reactions can occur. This is a foreign protein. It's, uh, it's derived from bacteria, from E. coli in this case. Um, so there is the potential for, um, for anaphylactic reactions or hypersensitivity reactions because it's a foreign protein. There's also the possibility that the immune system will recognize the foreign protein as foreign and create antibodies. And those antibodies can lead to uh, faster removal of the drug from the system and then arise in uh, asparagine levels in the body, which potentially could, could lead to treatment failure. So that's something to be aware of. Um, now, as I mentioned, the, the way this drug works is it deprives the, it, it basically eliminates the amino acid from the blood and then our cells make pick up the slack and make it on its own because our cells have the ability to do that, whereas the leukemia cells don't. But what if some of our cells couldn't pick up all the slack and couldn't make that amino acid? We would see potentially protein deficiencies. And when you look at the side effects and the, the, what we really worry about with this drug beyond hypersensitivity reactions, you can make a pretty, uh, pretty easy connection to protein deficiency. So we can see pancreatitis that can be severe, along with hyperglycemia uh, that can be um, present without pancreatitis. So I, I just mentioned pancreatitis and hyperglycemia because they are, are both pancreas problems, but deficiency of which protein would lead to hyperglycemia? Well, not enough insulin. We also see thrombosis and hemorrhage, there, and it's a little confusing whenever you see a drug that can cause uh, you know, opposite ends of the spectrum, like a drug causing constipation and diarrhea. But uh, these asparaginase compounds do cause thrombosis and cause hemorrhage, presumably linked to a decrease in either clotting proteins or anticoagulant proteins. We also see uh, hepatotoxicity as a warning precaution. This seems to be more common in adults. And 
research has linked this to a deficiency of glutamine, which is an amino acid that is just one carbon longer than asparagine. So it's certainly plausible that asparaginase, besides cleaving the amino acid asparagine, could also cleave glutamine, and that glut lower glutamine levels have been associated and found in patients with uh, severe hepatotoxicity to uh, asparaginase compounds. So really cool drug, uh, fairly targeted because we only use it in ALL, even though it's a fairly basic drug in that it's just an enzyme. But we have a new one on the market, uh, and again, I'm not an expert in ALL, so the, the role of this is just going to supplant pegasparaginase. I don't know, so that probably will depend on cost, um, but I'll save that for the ALL experts to weigh in on. Uh, so two more drugs to talk about, both approved on December 21st of 2018. The next one is ravulizumab-CWVZ, uh, which is approved for adults with paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria, or PNH. Uh, and this was a not approved on a non-inferiority study to eculizumab, which is uh, another complement inhibitor. So it's, this is basically a me-too drug of eculizumab. Uh, and these patients had PNH and were stable on eculizumab for six months. So they're on a drug, doing fine, and then these patients were randomized to either the old drug they were taking, eculizumab, the first complement inhibitor approved, or this new complement inhibitor, Ravulizumab, and it was found to be non-inferiority. Um, now, because um, this drug binds to to C5 complement and then prevents its its cleaving and activation, um, that's good for PNH cells because they're susceptible to that complement mediated complement mediated red blood cell lysis, and that leads to the problems of PNH. But complement is also dependent for uh, treating uh, our immune system's activity against. Uh, certain bacteria, including meningococcus. So there is a boxed warning for patients to have a vaccine for meningococcus two weeks prior to this and to be on the lookout for meningococcus, meningococcal infections in these patients. Similar to how you would think about patients who've had a splenectomy. Um, December 21st, again, uh, the last drug I'll talk about today is Tagaraxofusp-ERZS. And the FUSP there at the end of uh, tells you this is a fusion protein product. And this was approved for blastic plasmacytoid, plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, which is hard to say. Uh, now, this is a pretty rare disease, and it's going to be obvious it's rare when I read the efficacy data. So there were two cohorts of patients, those who were untreated for this uh, blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm and those who had relapsed disease. So seven of the 13 patients that were untreated, that's 54%, had some kind of response. Of the 15 who had relapsed disease, two had a response, uh, one of which was um, a complete response, one was a partial response. Uh, so this drug is a CD123-directed cytotoxin. Now, CD23 is the interleukin-3 receptor. So what we have here is interleukin-3 that is fused to a truncated diphtheria toxin. So it's a, very similar to... Um, to um, denylukin diphtotox, the old drug, which was an IL-2 diphtheriotoxin conjugate. This is IL-3 diphtheriotoxin. So we're given a toxin that's then going to bind to the IL-3 cells on, uh, or bind to the interleukin-3 receptor on these plastic plasmasoitoid dendritic cell neoplasms, potentially other white blood cells as well, and then that gets internalized, and ideally the diphtheriotoxin is just released inside the cell. That's not the case, though, as you, we will see from the toxicities 
as well as the pre-medications required pre-medication with a histamine 1 receptor antagonist, a histamine 2 receptor antagonist, acetaminophen, and a corticosteroid. And there is a box warning for capillary leak syndrome, with, which occurred in over 50% of all patients treated. And based on the PI, so for 94 patients, um, based on the PI, 94 patients have received this drug. And over half of them have had at least a grade 1 or 2, a grade 1 capillary leak syndrome of, of some kind. Um, two fatal cases of capillary leak in less than 100 patients. And these would be when the drug is given at centers, presumably, who uh, see this disease with some regularity. So certainly a drug that has some pretty dangerous, life-threatening, you know, slightly above 2% death rate from this drug uh, based on that two of 94 patients dying from capillary leak syndrome. So certainly a very serious um, and, and deserving of that boxed warning. There also is a warning precaution for hypersensitivity and hepatotoxicity as well with AST and ALT monitoring required. So those are some of our new but niche or niche drugs, depending on how you ask uh, the pronunciation of, of, that, of that word. Um, thanks for listening. I would encourage you to, to find us uh, on iTunes, uh, rate the podcast, preferably five stars, review us, tell us what you would like to hear uh, in the coming weeks. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at FarmDeetNib. You can find the podcast at OncoFarmPod on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, I'm hopeful next week we're going to have something a little bit different for you. So that's a little bit of a tease. won't say what that is yet till that's uh, recorded and ready for release. Um, but until then, I hope to see you all a little further down the road. Mm-hmm.